So empathy doesn't mean be kind. It's not about softness. It's not about tolerating mediocre performance. It's about understanding people so well, understanding what's going on in their lives and what makes them tick so that you can actually get them to perform at even higher grades. Welcome to the E-Word Podcast, Leadership Lessons from the Upside. The E-Word is about empathy and empathetic leadership. And I'm your host, Debbie Kleiman, managing partner of the Upside Angels and a member of the Upside. The Upside's a network of leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and investors who want to transform success into significance by helping others. We believe the world needs empathetic leadership now more than ever. So we decided to do a podcast on it to showcase some of the best E-word leaders and how they do it. You'll hear real world examples to understand the E-word in action. In today's episode, our guest is Diane Hessen. Diane's an investor, author, business advisor, award-winning entrepreneur, and innovator in the field of market research. She's founder of C-Space, which was acquired by Omnicom in 2011, and Diane still serves as company chairman. She has her own investing fund called Salient Ventures, where she invests in tech startups. And she's the author of two books. The most recent one that came out only a couple of weeks ago is called Our Common Ground, Insights from Four Years of Listening to American Voters. Diane's a sought-off speaker and mentor. She serves on several boards of directors, and I'm proud to call her a friend. Diane, thank you for joining us today. It's wonderful to have you here on the E-Word. Hi, Debbie. Nice to be here. You're such a perfect person to join us on the E-Word because having worked for you myself, I know you're an incredibly empathetic leader. So, you know, a lot has been written about empathetic leadership and leading with empathy. What does it mean to you in practical terms? Well... Look, I I think leading with empathy is basically walking in the shoes of other people. You know, I've worked with thousands of people and I've hired thousands of people um, over my long career. And I think people have a very, I mean, obviously we all want to be successful. We all want to grow in our careers. But at the core, I think we want to feel understood and heard. I read some research, this is probably in the 80s, and I remember it was like McKinsey research. It was, it may not have been McKinsey, but it was a very reputable organization, and they looked at the reasons that people leave organizations, and the number three reason was money. The number two reason is that they couldn't stand their boss, and the number one reason was no one cared what they thought, and I thought that was fascinating. But, I mean, think about that, right? And, and number one, I thought it was fascinating. Number two, I could totally relate to it because whether you're the CEO or whether you're the receptionist, you want to make a difference. You want to see how you fit in. And so I think empathy is all about that. It's about, a, it's about leading in a way where you feel that it is your responsibility to have a deep understanding of who's walking the hallways and who's sitting in the Zoom meetings and who is spending a significant portion of their life trying to help you build your company. So 
I think that's really what it is. I mean, I, I think also on a practical level, I've always thought the way to become a good leader is um, to like think about when you've been led really well, when you felt really inspired. And then secondly, like think about a time when you were led poorly and how each, how each of those leaders make you feel. And what did the leader do or not do to make you feel that way? And to the point where sometimes people will say to me, I have like the worst boss on the planet. You know, he is the worst. She is the worst and whatever. And I always say, good, good. This is so great to have this, this experience. So watch everything this person does and write it down because someday you will have their job and all you're going to need to do is the opposite of what they did and you'll be a great leader. Certainly, if someone has made a decision that they're going to spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week working for you, you better really understand why they come in during the day and what really matters to them and, you know, as a result, how you can motivate them. Yeah, exactly. I I think there's a whole element of empathy in a way that you're you're trying to understand what motivates them, right? So it's not even just being empathetic to their current situation, but how do you motivate people? And they and everyone's motivated a little bit differently, and I think by being an empathetic leader as you said, I think you do get a good sense of what motivates people if you're listening carefully, and that can be a huge advantage in the relationships you build in the workplace. Yeah. Are there some stories from your career that you could share that really demonstrate the E-word in action and how you thought about leading in a difficult situation? Sure. You know, I mean, generally, I think empathetic leadership is about shutting up and listening. You know, in terms of difficult situations, you know, I mean, the one I've told a million times is um, at Community Space when we were running out of money in 2001, we literally thought that we were going to need to lay off half of our staff, which was very small at the time. It was only 25 people. But we thought we were going to need to lay off half the staff in order for the company to survive. And I talked to a lot of other CEO friends, what are you doing, how are you doing this? And they were all, their, their big deal was to keep their difficult financial situation confidential because they thought that if they shared the information, people would actually freak out. But of course, if you think about what it was like when you were an employee, you would want to know absolutely everything going on and try to help. So if I did in that situation, if I called all of our employees into a conference room, we sat for two or three hours, I taught them everything they ever wanted to know about cash flow. We laid out our entire situation about how to think about money coming in and money going out. And... Um, I basically said to everybody, we have to make our cash last until November. They learned about runway. They learned about just burn rates, everything that, you know, you do in cash management 101. And at the end of the meeting, I said, look, I have some ideas about what we need to do, but we need to move fast here. So tomorrow afternoon, let's get back together. Please, any ideas that you have would be worthwhile. And they came back really, really energized. With 52 ideas, honestly, some of those 52 ideas I had, but not all. And the big one that they had was that they all agreed to take a fairly significant pay cut in return for stock options on the condition. So they came to you with that idea. That wasn't something that you said to them. No, I didn't say that. No. I mean, I would never have, I would never have thought that people were willing to take a pay cut. You know, in, in a significant way, enough to be able to basically be able to save the company. But you know, the economy was so bad 
they were all a really tight team. They were afraid about somebody getting laid off and kind of going out into a marketplace where it was really impossible to get a job. And so the employees not only came back with recommendations, but they literally saved the company. And my other CEO friends thought I was crazy, but I found that if you really try to understand what's going on for employees during difficult times, people want to know what's going on. You know, like they think things aren't good with the company, so they watch you. And, you know, if you frown, they go, oh, my gosh, the company's falling apart. The company's falling apart. Right, right. They can sense it. It's not like they're totally oblivious to what's happening. Right. So um, I, if you tell people the truth and are transparent, even if it's bad news, the irony is that they relax because now they know what they're dealing with. So if you say nothing and you keep everything confidential, they watch you. They look to see if you're frowning and they fill in the blanks. But if you say, here's everything that I'm actually worried about, and I know now I'm probably making you worry, but like, don't worry because I'm worrying for everyone else. Um, You actually see their faces start to smile, you know, in the face of it. Yeah. So I'm hearing you talk a lot about transparency as well as listening being really important characteristics of your leadership style. And then I, I think it's really interesting also that you talked about teaching them how to read financial statements, understand cash flows, because in doing that, you're you're making them feel valued. You're making them feel respected because you want them to be able to understand and relate in a smart way to what's happening with the company. So I think that that's really special too. I think that's a, a, a neat part of your leadership style. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I think one of the myths about empathy is that if you're an empathetic leader, you're soft, Right. Somebody has lousy performance, and you go, oh, boy, I remember a situation which I have lousy performance. No. You know, in fact, one of the things that I learned, I actually learned this from my employees, is that my style as a leader is hard and soft. So, you know, what empathy's allowed me to do is, like, people who work for me over the years know that I care tremendously. I'm warm. I hug people. I'm heavy on recognition. I know what's going on in their lives, or, you know, at least I hug people before COVID, et cetera. Um, But because of that, I'm also able to be really tough. So my bar is super high. I've had people sitting in my office crying, saying nothing's ever good enough for you and everything, but it's just, you know, I I care. So when I think somebody can do much better, I'm not going to fire them, but I am going to be super direct and say, you can do so, so much better at this. And so the empathy is a great tool, not just for showing people that you care, but it's a great tool for knowing when you can push somebody really hard. You know, when you can, you know, and, and think about like high performers, you talk to anybody who's a high performer and really ambitious. And the thing that they hate the most is some leader telling them how great they are with no improvement feedback. It's like, can you think of anything that I could do better? Do you think of anything I could do differently? Nope. I mean, you're just really great. And you know when you're a high performer that there must be plenty of things that you can do better. So if you have a performance culture and you really understand how those people feel and you're empathetic, you're going to push and you're going to say, not good enough. And let's sit down and, you know, let's work this through because I think that you can succeed and grow faster. 
So I think empathy allows you to demonstrate that you care while you're you know, kind of pushing people you know, to go as hard and fast as they possibly can. It's not inconsistent. Yeah, I really love that. It's the idea of also that you kind of earn the right or you earn the ability to speak to someone about performance improvements because you've been transparent, because you care, because they genuinely trust you. And all of that has kind of built over time. So it allows you to be that kind of leader also and, and you know, not upset them or not feel like they don't understand why you're pushing them because it's coming from such a good place and they understand that. Yeah. So I want to segue a bit to talk about your new book because I think it is, it's such a moment for this book. Um, it's called Common Ground, as we talked about, and it's a culmination of your four years of research on the American voter and dozens of newspaper columns that you wrote based on those conversations. So can you first describe that research and talk about why you wanted to do this? Sure. So, you know, Communispace, which is the company I've referred to a few times in this, you know, that I and my founders and our team built over 14 years was basically a next generation market research company. So we built these online communities that were used by major brands, kind of like a focus group on steroids. And when people used our technology, they had consumer advisors at the ready um, whenever and wherever they needed the information to be able to kind of give them insight and inspiration as they move forward. So it was a super cool business because every major brand wants to be able to wire, hardwire the voice of the customer into their organization. And much, much later, literally like two years after I left C-Space and was actually running another company, I had an opportunity to do a project to help the Clinton campaign understand undecided voters in swing states. I thought it would be a really fun thing to do. I knew a lot about how you build trust online, how you get people to open up and tell you what they think, and um, to understand the why behind the data. So I took this project on. I moved from a CEO job, sitting alone in my office, interviewing voters, and then brought them onto this panel and, you know, asked them questions on a weekly basis. And uh, when the election was over, I was about to take another CEO job. And I thought, mm, you know, before I just drop all these people, I think I'll just write an article about what I've been doing and what I've learned about the American electorate. And the op-ed went viral. It's a long story that we don't have time for, but Jake Tapper of CNN picked up the, on the article and started talking about it. And all of a sudden, it's like blowing up on the Boston Globe website. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I love doing this project. I'm making more of a difference after the election than before. So I totally did a pivot in my career. I added a bunch more corporate boards and carved out about one third of my professional time so that I could start really digging in and understanding voters. And uh, I ended up recruiting an entirely new panel of 500 voters, all points of the political spectrum, every age, every ethnicity, every state, of course. And uh, the book, Our Common Ground, is the culmination of everything that I've learned from talking on a weekly basis to 500 people for four, four and a half years. I've got about 7 million pieces of data. And um, I tried to write something that was easy to read and not just for political junkies that really kind of gave a perspective on what I learned about talking to regular Americans that's, I think, less depressing and um, 
definitely more hopeful than a lot of what many of us experience on a day-to-day basis. I think that it was very easy to read. It felt um, like you were talking to someone about you know, what they knew about people's thinking around politics and the issues that face our country. So I do think that that was one of the really unique things about your book, and it made it really fun to read and then also to talk about with other people who had read it because, you know, it sort of, it kicks off this sense of wanting to talk about this dynamic that you uncovered about the American voter. You know, what do you think was the most surprising thing that you learned from this research? I think the most surprising thing is that, you know, when I call the book Our Common Ground, it's because there is actually way, way more common ground in our country than we realize, particularly on issues of policy. And we don't know that. And part of why we don't know that is that the airtime in our lives, on social media, on TV, in our conversations, is all focused on the extreme. So... You know, if you ask a Democrat what they think about Republicans, they'll give you this crazy description of Republicans. It's only the case for like the most radical 5%. And vice versa, you ask most Republicans about Democrats, and it's the exact same thing. It's all the radical viewpoints. When actually most people are just regular, good Americans trying to kind of make ends meet, educate their kids and put food on the table. Most people are not super obsessed with politics. And, you know, a a lot of people are just pretty moderate. But you would never know that just from reading the paper or or seeing what's going on on a day-to-day basis. And when I say common ground, I don't think it means that there's an opportunity for everybody in America to agree on everything. But there's enormous opportunity to stop the insanity an enormous opportunity to just turn the temperature down uh, in our country by just, I guess, being more empathetic by listening uh, to each other and having conversations where instead of making assumptions about what's going on for somebody, you know, just as we all know as experienced managers that if you have an employee who's not engaged and who's not working hard, who's coming in late, you don't immediately go to, she's lazy. You say, gee, I wonder what's going on for that person that's making it seem like she's lazy. And you go figure it out. And in the same way, if you see somebody who's, you know, got a Trump sticker on their windshield, or if you're a Republican and you see somebody walking down the street, with, you know, triple masked, instead of saying, oh, I know that person's story. I know what that person believes and what that person values. It's worth just taking a deep breath and trying to really walk in their shoes in very much the same way. And most of the time, when you do that, you learn a tremendous amount and it actually makes you feel better about where we are as a country because we're just not, we don't have to be as divided as we currently are. So that's what I've tried to write about and just tried to tell a lot of stories in the process. Yeah, you talked about the power of listening and the magic of conversation. Um and are there other ways that those two things relate to empathetic leadership or, or empathy in general? I, you, you brought in a few things there, but are there other ways that we can learn from people just by listening? It, it sounded to me in the book, you said, listening hard is about getting insight and understanding, not persuasion. 
Is that something that people can learn how to do and be a better leader for it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, what's the big test? I'll just take it back to politics for a second. Right now, there are 35 million Americans who believe that the election in November of 2020 was fraudulent. Some of your listeners might be in that group. But there are 35 million, and that number has not changed in months. If you are not in that group, most of those people will say the same. You meet somebody who thinks the election was fraudulent, and we all say the same thing. 60 out of 61. That's like the big number. 60 out of 61 cases were thrown out by judges. People brought the thing. And we got more articles about 60 out of 61 cases were thrown out. I will tell you that every one of those 35 million people knows that 60 out of 61 cases were thrown out. And they still believe the election is fraudulent. So clearly, the brilliance of everybody else, the articles, the videos, the statistics, the 60 out of 61 doesn't do the trick. It doesn't persuade anybody. What persuades people is to meet them where they are. And that starts by saying, really, you think the election was fraudulent. That's so interesting. Tell me more. Tell me where you got that from. What did you read? Can you send me that article? I'd really like to read that. And then what? And what else? And what else? And what else? And you find fascinating things. Like the fact that of the 35 million, I don't know how many it is, but a significant chunk of that population believes that the, the biggest problem, you know, it's not like, you know, most of those people believe they've really done their homework. This is not like, ooh, I love Donald Trump and I'm not that smart. Therefore, I'll just say it's fraudulent. People have really read, and at least half of my voters who believe the election was fraudulent are focused on one thing, one element of voting, which is mail-in ballots, and particularly mail-in ballots where you don't have to prove that you are the person whose name is on the ballot. There's no certification involved there. Now, you could argue this round or flat or anything, but you know that's at least something that you can deal with. This is not some somebody just going fraud, fraud, fraud. This is somebody saying, I believe that we need to completely transform the way we think about mail-in ballots, for instance. Different issue. Different from 60 out of 61, 60 out of 61. So I think in almost any of these cases, so often we think that the way that we have conversations with people and the way that we get to empathy is just to say, Read this article, watch this video, look at these statistics, and listen to me because I've done all the homework. And it's amazing how much it doesn't work. I mean, I think we are not great in the U.S. at just suspending disbelief, at saying, why don't I just take a deep breath here? And instead of proving how smart I am, let me prove how curious I am. Let me Think about how perhaps the assumptions that I am making about somebody who thinks the election is fraudulent might be the same as the assumptions I made about that employee who came in where I kind of thought that she was lazy until I realized that she had some other stuff going on in her life. That doesn't mean it happens all the time. I mean, there are crazy people in this country, and there are tons of lazy employees out there, but just 
dialing down our need to demonstrate how smart we are. And, you know, you know all the sayings about there's a reason you have two ears and one mouth. And I, I think, you know, working both ears on all cylinders makes a big difference. So it sounds like tell me more can lead to lots of really good things. That feels very actionable to me that you can say tell me more to an employee or a customer or a voter or a friend and learn a ton. Yeah. So what else? What other guidance, like tips like that, that I can just park in my brain and I know I can use it later that would help me be a better leader and help our listeners be better leaders as it relates to some of these concepts we talked about? Oh, you know, look, I, I go back to what we talked about in the beginning, Debbie. I mean, I think, I think the job of a leader is to make people feel heard and to make people feel understood and to make them feel that what they are doing matters, that it's important. And being able to do that requires way more than looking at somebody and saying, you know, you really matter. It requires knowing them. It requires knowing a little bit about what they do and how they spend their time during the day so that when you're saying that, that's how you're authentic. You're not authentic by like acting authentic. You're authentic when you can say to somebody, you know, you made a really extraordinary difference this week and I just wanted to tell you. So I know you've been working on A and B, but When you did see, that was like a huge game changer for us. And I'm really grateful. So get out of here and go home to your family. You know, naming their kids' names is a bonus. Not critical. So, um, you know, that's a lot of it. We say things like be empathetic or be authentic or, you know, be visionary. But the ways in which we do that really require us to understand context. Who is the person, you know, who is the company? People say, I I remember once somebody said to me, "Um, Diane, I know you're like really focused on our company growing, but like, I don't know why we need to grow. But this place is crazy. We're growing so fast. Why do we need to grow? And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I don't even understand that question. Why would you not want to grow? I said, you know, don't you want to grow your career? Well, he said, I think I can grow my career anyway. I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I just realized I didn't even have a way. I mean, I can, I can give this guy a vision about what the company will be like, but he's asking me whether we, how we can grow it. I finally got to the point where I realized that he's like on a frontline customer service job, and he had one client who was literally abusive. This was a West Coast bank. And I finally got to the point where, because I understood his situation, I can say, I can say to him, look, let me tell you why we need to grow. Because at some point, we are going to be big enough that I am going to call that person on the phone, fire the client. And (laughs) and I want you in the room when I do it. And if we can make our numbers for next year, we are going to be able to afford to lose a $300,000 client. And right now, you have to put up with this, which makes it difficult for me to sleep at night. And and I know you know it's your job, but you have to put up with a disrespectful person because you work in an organization that cannot afford to lose that client. And believe me, it makes me crazy. Well, you know, this guy turned into a major growth advocate. And I will tell you that he, I brought him to California with me when I fired the client. 
And so you did eventually fire the client. I did eventually fire the client. And, um, and I remember saying, you know, we can't work with you anymore because you can't treat our employees this way. And I really appreciate all the business, but we can afford to lose you now. So even saying to somebody, we're going to be big and we're going to grow. I mean, that might be really great for me, but not everybody understands that. So again, what's the context? What's the thing that really, really, you know, gets people excited in their personal situation? And you don't have to be perfect at this. But the more that you understand that, the more that there can be a fit between what you're saying and where you want to go as an organization and what kind of place you want to be for your customers, the more that you can connect that to what's going on for your people, the more successful you're going to be. That was great. That was so good. Lots of lessons in here, Diane. Thank you. Really um, useful examples too, so I can feel how I might start to use some of the tips that you've offered. I appreciate you spending time with us today and your insights are just always very valuable. So remember listeners, don't be afraid to use the E word and we'll see you next time. I'm Debbie Kleiman for The Upside. <laughs>